0: Hey, this episode of the Newport Folk Podcast is brought to you by Keen. Driven by a passion for life outside, Keen is a values-led footwear and lifestyle brand from Portland, Oregon, that's on a mission to create original and versatile products, improve lives, and inspire outside adventures. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Hey, welcome. My name is Dan and you're listening to the Newport Folk Podcast. Last month, we announced that we are releasing a vinyl record of the Speak Out set from last year's festival for Record Store Day this year, which is this Saturday, April 21st. And so in this episode, we're going to be taking a look at how and why we made that record. But before we dive into the episode, as always, we've got some housekeeping to do. First, we've got some upcoming Newport Folk Presents shows. The Suffers will be at Sinclair in Cambridge, Mass next week, Tuesday, April 24th. On Friday, June 8th, Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats will be with Tick at Blue Hills Bank Pavilion in Boston. And on Friday, June 5th, John Prine will be at the Wang Theater in Boston as well. Tickets to those are all still available, so make sure you get them before they sell out next our rolling lineup has been rolling particularly fast since last podcast so i'm just going to run through the artists that we've announced since then we've got the lone bellow jd mcpherson charlie parr camp jason isbell nicole adkins twain this is the kit Jen Kloer, Brandy Carlisle, Daniel Norgan, Curtis Harding, Lucius, Moses Sumney, His Golden Messenger, Amanda Shires, Change Is Gonna Come, hosted by John Batiste featuring the Dap Kings, Side Tori, Glorietta, The Wood Brothers, Langhorne Slim, and The Lost at Last Band, Low Cut Connie, Valerie June, Lucas Nelson, and Promise of the Real, Prez Hall, Karungbin, Eric D. Johnson's Beneath the Sacred Mountain, A Cosmic American Review, Bermuda Triangle, and finally Margot Price. Of course, make sure to check out our social media channels for more upcoming artist announcements. But that wraps up housekeeping. Let's begin the episode. Newport Folk's history with vinyl records dates back to just about the inception of the festival itself. Here's a track from a recording from 1963, You'll recognize Pete Seeger's voice in the introduction
1: I often think you know it's easy for
2: a person living up in safety to sing about freedom but uh, to really know how to sing those songs maybe you'd have to face the dogs face the hoses and the water and go to jail as these four young people have gone to jail not once or twice but some of them as many as a dozen or two dozen times during the past two years in trying to make our country a more democratic country
1: here they are the freedom singers from albany georgia <laughs> <laughs>
3: of not to i for my fighting
4: for my this
0: is a song called Fighting for My Rights. It's by the Freedom Singers from a record titled Newport Folk Broadside, topical songs at the Newport Folk Festival, 1963. And it's one of the dozen or so records released during the sort of late 50s to mid 60s from the Newport Folk Festival taken from actual sets. And some of them were genre specific, like traditional music at Newport or blues at Newport, and others focused on individual artists or sets. And they were really more than just live recordings. They were meant to be documents of the different music styles represented at the festival, like Cajun music or Israeli folk. These records really served as timepieces. They told the stories of the festivals, and they were staples of the American record collection. You could find them in a lot of living rooms. But of course, by the late 70s, vinyl and record culture in general seemed to be on the way out, replaced by, you know, more portable and convenient formats like cassettes, CDs, and eventually MP3s. But thanks in large part to a handful of record shops across the country, vinyl records never did fade away completely. People kept coming and buying it, which you don't hear. This is Paul Basilinski, owner and manager of the Record Exchange in Salem, Mass. Founded in 1974, it's one of the longest continuously run record shops in the country and we met up with him to discuss the importance of vinyl and record stores.
5: There has always been that draw toward records, toward vinyl, toward record store culture where people are acknowledged, um, where there's banter and conversation about music and the importance of music and how, you know, even the artwork on a record cover. I mean, conversations can go from who engineered the record and what pressing is it to what a great album cover
0: and everything in between. For Paul and the folks at the Record Exchange, vinyl was kept alive by a small but dedicated community of loyal customers. But in recent years, record sales have picked up and that community has started growing. I think in an age
5: where everything comes at us, high speed, everything, you know, we're, we're just being bombarded with information, with sound, with images, and I think having a record actually is a process that can actually slow us down and make us more mindful about what we're doing, and mindfulness is not something that young people are used to. It's you know even not even not so young people but we're, we're constantly moving we don't even we don't cherish anything in the moment because we're too busy you know taking pictures and posting them on Facebook instead of looking at the piece of art in a museum we're taking pictures of just walking, getting as many as we can so I think a record you put it on it's a process that actually relaxes you and you can immerse yourself and get into Really just listening to that and not worrying about it. I've got 4,000 songs in my playlist and I'm only on number hundred
0: You know, whatever it could be. This March it was announced that physical sales beat out digital downloads in 2017 and we're seeing more and more friends and artists in the folk family use records to share and distribute their music So we asked a few of them to discuss their thoughts on vinyl. Here's Jess Wolf from Lucius
3: I think there's no greater listening experience than Having something physical that you can put on a record player and spinning it and enjoying it in a place that sounds good. Um, there is like a nostalgia. There's a, a sort of um, crispness and and uh, grittiness even to that experience that you don't get by pressing play on Spotify. Woo-hoo-hoo.
6: I'm not a vinyl purist in that I think it's the end-all be-all.
0: You might recognize that voice. This is Stephen from Spirit Family Reunion.
6: But I think the way people listen to music now is kind of disrespectful to musicians. I think people take one song off an album and put it on their Spotify playlist, and it's kind of insulting. I, I think we have such short attention spans, and it's really apparent in music listening. And I think it does a disservice to the listener and to the person who created the music. And the great thing I love about records are it's an artifact. And you're not going to skip around the needle to a different track every once in a while. You're going to listen to the whole side through and then flip it over and listen to the other side. So, and this, this store facilitates that for people. So, I think record stores are integral to making music... Great for the listener and the performer.
0: So considering the growing impact that records have had shaping both the festival and our community, conversations in the office started up about this idea of releasing a record from a set at Newport. And it's been over 40 years since Newport has released a full LP record of a set from the festival, so a good amount of thought was put behind picking the right set. The Speak Out set from Sunday of last year celebrated Newport's history of providing a safe space for artists to speak their mind and speak truth to power. The collaboration set consisted of over 20 artists and was directed by the one and only Chris Funk.
2: Hi, my name is Chris Funk and I uh, am a member of the band The Decemberists, and I was the musical director for the one-time event called Speak Out at the Newport Folk Festival in 2017.
0: Funk worked with our team and the artists over the course of several months to select songs that inspired them at one point or another to speak out.
2: I, th- I think part of it um, in the curation of it with Jay and Britt from the festival, um, they had some. You know, they'd already spoken with Margot Price, and it was kind of who's who's going to be there, who's available, who can deliver these sort of special moments. You know, who who is this type of, who are these types of singers, who can we meld together that's interesting. So. Um, like, to me, one of the more interesting ones was Nick Offerman with Jim James.
0: Here's a quick clip from that collaboration. They did Masters of War. And just as a note, for the rest of the episode, the music that you'll hear is from the Speak Out set itself.
6: Okay.
2: And then also sort of looking at like, well, you've got an hour. So, you know, Newport is, there's so many people backstage hanging around that are accomplished and well-known musicians or not as well-known, but worthy of being on the stage. So you just sort of have to look at how many slots you can fill and then kind of work backwards from who's sticking around Sunday night and then who you think is going to deliver sort of this message of political triumph or ease or... You know what? What we were trying to achieve with it.
0: One of those accomplished musicians hanging out backstage was Zach Williams from The Lone Bellow. We caught up with him in New York City to ask how he selected his song.
3: How did you come about your song choice? Was that something that you that immediately... was a super
0: long process for me? Okay. because um, I was, I think I was listening to a lot of the stable singers for a, a lot of that time, and actually Chris, um, we were talking about like some songs that they covered that Dylan wrote, and we're thinking about that, and I was like, no,
3: that's not quite it.
0: And then Chris Funk and and Jay texted me, and they were like, man, have you heard this song that Jackson Brown covered? And I listened to it, and the bridge was
6: like, no, I'm no socialist, I'm no Democrat, I'm no Republican.
0: Uh, The only party I know is freedom, and I was just like, that's how I feel. That's what I would love to say and sing with anybody else that wants to sing it. So the bridge is really what connected me to the song for sure.
4: But I ain't no communist, and
6: I ain't no socialist.
0: Oddly enough, the idea to turn the Speak Out set into a vinyl record actually came after the festival. And for the second part of this episode, we're going to take a look at each step of that process. Britt Ryan, our associate producer, was the one responsible for putting it all together. And so I asked her to talk with me about how and also why we made this record. All right, rolling, rolling, good. So, Britt, we made a record. We did. How's it feel?
3: It was tiring. No, I'm kidding. It was awesome. It was a. Uh, truly a, another one of those bucket list items that I feel lucky enough every day when I get to come to my job and do some new project like that. So
0: Yeah, and before we dive into the actual process of how we made the record, I'm sort of curious about your thoughts on the whole vinyl resurgence and the role that it's playing in our, our folk community.
3: Yeah, so I mean, I think vinyl right now obviously is having a resurgence commercially and just the consumption of it just continues to increase and um, all of us here in the office are into vinyl, we love going to vinyl shops, and I personally love the texture of the sound and how it's different than putting on a Spotify playlist, and I was actually listening to the test pressing last night at my house, and, um, you know, just that process of putting on the record and not having screens and not having a million things going on my house is chaos most of the time, and I think... Going through that exercise is a little meditative in a way. Um, And the way I listen to it and the way I consume music on vinyl is different. I listen to it as a whole piece. Mm. I'm not jumping around on Spotify or like, you know.
0: Checking emails. Yeah.
3: And I'm not, I like, and the other crazy thing I was thinking about too is having, living in a home that with technology, that's a connected home. Mm. Like I can talk to my speakers and sometimes my speakers randomly talk to me, which could be (laughs) creepy, but um, just being able to you know, drop that needle, and you have to have the patience, and you have to be listening and consuming in a different way than I do when I'm just constantly skipping around on Spotify or whatever. It's funny how our brains kind of work differently with different technologies.
0: Yeah, and so as we discussed earlier, it's been um, almost 40 years since we've released a vinyl record, so can you talk a little bit about where that idea for um, the Speak Out Vinyl came from and how it started?
3: Well, so. You know, we had been toying with the idea of trying to capture more audio on site and what we might do with it, and I think we kind of looked back into our history and said, well, they used to release records all the time from both the folk and jazz festivals, and I have a handful of them, and it's a pretty amazing time capsule uh, for our history and for our festivals, and I think for us, we're torchbearers, and we're one part in the long history of Newport Folk and Jazz, and they were here long before me, and I'm hoping they'll be here long after. Um, So I just felt like it was important to kind of continue that idea of capturing this unique timepiece that's something you can hold, it's tangible, it's something we can keep in the archives and, you know, have for years to come.
0: Yeah, so I guess let's start, let's walk through the uh, steps to making a record. It sort of goes without saying, but really, the first part is to capture the audio, right? To make sure that you have a recording um, of the live set. So, talk to me about that process and the people involved.
3: Yeah, so uh, we're lucky enough to to have brought Steve Remote and his crew on site this year, and he has this badass mobile recording studio. It's this like unassuming sprinter that's full of this incredible equipment that I don't even begin to understand how they use, but. Um, uh, yeah, he he was on site and he was able to capture all this multi-track audio for us, which gave us the ability beyond just archiving it for a historical purpose, but to be able to then take it and do something more with it and to be able to mix it into something like a vinyl record. Um, so we were really, um, I was really grateful to have his team on site and um,
7: they're just pros. Well, actually, there's many different ways to skin the cat.
0: This, of course, is Steve Remote. I asked him to give me the sort of explain it like I'm a five-year-old
7: version of what he does. But what we needed to do is capture individual multi-track channels, tracks. So basically we would have a microphone splitter that would take the actual performance microphones and then split it to three different locations. One would go to the monitor engineer that's mixing the, the band sound and then uh, a front of house guy that's mixing the sound for the audience, and then you have the broadcast or recordist that's there that needs to be capturing.
0: Steve explained that once that audio was captured from the mics, it would be sent to that sprinter van that Britt was talking about earlier before, with the mixing gear built in, and the tracks would then be mixed and either stored for later use, like turning into a vinyl record, or they would be sent to his broadcast setup in a casemate backstage where they'd be uploaded for the tune-in live stream. And so this whole process is all connected, and Steve and his team run huge wires across the fort from all three stages back to the mixing van.
7: I mean, we're literally talking, some of the cable runs were a thousand feet, and it was a pretty pretty badass, you know, I must say.
0: Of course, for a collaboration set like Speak Out, with so many different artists and instruments and amps, things get even more complicated.
7: Oh, absolutely. You know, it was like a moving target. So, you really have to really have your your gain stages set up. And quite frankly, sometimes some things just never never worked, you know, never were there. You know, this is the the reality of a, a live performance that sometimes a mic gain is going to work and then it goes away. And uh, and interestingly, um, When we listened back before we sent the files to to Chris for his uh, magic to be added, um, you know, we listened to everything. We were really, really happy and impressed with the fact that this was kind of put together, you know, relatively last minute. And man, you know, it, it just sounded wonderful.
3: So yeah, I mean, I think we're just so lucky to have the team we have, and uh, you know, our stage manager Greg Miller was just ready to roll with whatever punch was coming his way by Sunday afternoon after going through an entire weekend of all this craziness. Crazy. But um, and you know, John Pissarro, and our our production manager and Scott Cadell, who handles all our backline, they're just so ready. Or whatever crap I throw their way and trust me it's a laundry list um, <laughs> so sorry for probably giving them near heart attacks but um and you know Steve speaks to that same idea that it's this crazy f- fly by the seed your pants um everyone coming together to just get this thing done and and but it makes you so proud when you come out the other end and it is as magical as you more magical than I think any of us dreamed it was going to be.
0: After the festival weekend, Steve sent us the audio recordings of the Speak Out set and Jay Caps and Britt listened to him and decided it had to be made into a vinyl record. And so the next step was finding someone who could mix it.
3: Yeah, so then when we decided to turn this into vinyl, I reached out to Steve and connected him with Funk, who happens to work in a studio, and I felt like there was no one better than him to mix it for what would ultimately be the, the vinyl release.
0: The terms mixing and mastering have always been a little bit confusing and mysterious for me, despite the fact that I produce a podcast. So I asked Funk to explain and talk about the process for mixing the speak outset.
2: It used to be called balancing, which makes more sense when you think about it. So you're balancing the levels. How loud is the snare drum microphone in, in comparison to the bass guitar and the vocal mic? So you're just sort of making everything sit properly. And then you can take it from there and, and you know, make things sound larger than life now with compression and other tricks. So it's sort of just balancing balancing the, the recording. If you take something straight off the board, uh, straight from the festival, you know, there's, no, there's crowd noise we had to deal with. Um, there's sort of the reflection of the tent on the top of the stage that was kind of an issue, if you really want to know. Kind of getting into the weeds here. And then... Uh, maybe ducking a botched note by a guitar player on the left side of the stage, not naming any names, me, or, you know, sort of <laughs> trying to stay out of it, you know, trying trying to let it be a real document, but also maybe someone blew a note, so we polished it here or there, but very, very minimal interference with the performance. So fortunately, I have a recording studio in Portland, Oregon, where I'm speaking to you from now, and, um, I had volunteered myself up and then Adam Lee, who I work with, who's sitting on the other side of the glass right now, um, and he and I started going through the files and, and seeing what was there to see how the performances were. And the audio ended up being great and the performances ended up being great. So it was, um, and live live recordings can just be horrible <laughs> for, so, for so many reasons. Um, and uh it it turned out it turned out good it was it wasn't without work we had to you know shape quite a bit of of things and to get it to sound powerful and intimate and um but hopefully people people dig it if nothing else it's a document of the day and um but we're, we're really proud of of how it came out
3: Yeah, so I was really grateful to, to Funk and Adam, because um, for us, we were really working in tandem of getting all the agreements out to the artists um, to to agree to participate in this final project, while also having him find time in his crazy schedule to, to mix this stuff, to send it to the artists, to get their feedback, to work through those edits, all within a pretty tight timeline to make sure we could make the deadline yeah. for, it to be a record store day release, so I was super grateful to them. And then they sent it actually back over to our coast, um, where it was mastered at Peerless Mastering, in, I think they're right in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it was it was um, it was definitely a flurry of activity, but it was it was fun to build a peek into that process.
0: With the audio fully mixed and mastered, and the licensing sorted out, Britt had to find someone who would actually press the vinyl records which is where our good friend Karen comes into play.
1: Hi, I'm Karen Kelleher. I'm the founder and president of Gold Rush Vinyl. We're a new vinyl record manufacturing plant in Austin, Texas.
0: Karen is the kind of person who can decide she's going to do something and just master it. Britt actually met her when she was working for Paste Magazine. And last year, she was part of our team, helping with sponsorships before she opened up her record plant. And if there's a conventional path that people follow to learn how to open up a record-pressing plant, Karen didn't take it.
1: I got into this business kind of accidentally as a frustrated vinyl buyer myself on the customer side. Um, I was a band manager for a number of years and I was watching at merch tables how many young people were asking for vinyl. And the more I tried to get it pressed, especially for timely opportunities like Record Store Day and tours, I was being told that turnaround times were anywhere from four to seven months, which just in the era of Being able to order just about anything on your phone on demand is too long to ask anybody to wait, Um, but especially for developing bands where, you know, having merch on tour makes the difference between, you know, staying in a hotel room and sleeping in your in your van.
0: So you talked a little bit about it, but what kind of projects are you doing in terms of, you know, vinyl size and are you working specifically with music or are you doing comedy and other stuff?
1: Yeah, so my plant is the only one um, in the U.S. that focuses on short-run orders. So we will um, run orders um, under 300 copies even, which most plants won't do. Um, and the typical projects we have are fall into three buckets, which actually our name kind of helps to delineate. The first is gold projects, which are limited edition releases like the Record Store Day released for Newport Folk Festival. Um, other projects are rush projects where it's, it needs a quick turnaround time. Our turnaround times are four to six weeks on average. And then there's just standard vinyl orders, where it's you know, folks who haven't pressed vinyl before and, and want to give it a shot, but don't need to go to the huge facilities where 50,000 records are being pressed in order to do that.
0: Yeah. So I should probably take a step back and ask the question of what exactly is a vinyl record pressing plant?
1: A record pressing plant is where um, reproductions of a master vinyl record are made. So the process for making vinyl is we receive music files from an artist or from a label those get cut into what's called um, a master lacquer disc. It's carved, uh, the grooves are carved with a diamond or a ruby stylus that kind of cuts based on how deep um, the frequency of the music is. That's then sprayed with a silvering solution, uh, electroplated, which is to put um, water, uh, electrocute water and have nickel deposit itself around a record, it's crazy to watch this happening. Um, And then that creates stampers. Those stampers are the negative of a record, so for every groove, it actually becomes a valley. That's then put into the pressing machines that we have in our facility here, and wet vinyl is pressed literally between those two metal stampers to come up with the discs that make the vinyl records that you know and love. It's such a crazy art and science. I love watching it happen, and it's so fun to have the records come right off the press and be able to go play them.
0: Oh, so cool. I definitely want to watch that process. So I'm going to try and find a YouTube video and post it in the show notes so people listening can watch it as well. But um, let's talk about Speak Out. How did you get involved in in that whole process?
1: So when uh, the Newport team um, had that set last year when I was at Newport, um, I think even then they were kind of thinking, what could we do with this? It's so special for the people that couldn't be here at Newport, especially in the times we're living in where these you know, artists all getting together and, you know, in the spirit of Newport was so important. Um, I was really thrilled to work with the Newport team and Chris Funk um, from the Decemberists to kind of bring this project to life. One of the early things we had to do was to make sure that um, the music could all fit onto a vinyl record, because certainly the more vinyl, the more music you fit onto a record, um, the harder it is to cut those grooves. And so it was fun to kind of walk through that process with them and figure out, you know, which pieces of, commentary from the stage should be kept on there, which music um, made sense to fit on the yeah. record. Um, from there, we took it out to Nashville to get um, cut and to get plated so that we could have the stampers for um, the job. And one of the interesting pieces of, of doing vinyl is you know, making sure that the test press is approved. So it was fun to get feedback from the Newport team about how that record sounded um, versus the digital format. And that's when you really get to hear the magic of vinyl when it comes to life in that way.
0: Of course, once you've got the records pressed, you need something to hold them, which is where the last part of this process comes in, the album cover artwork. Here's our creative director, Chris Capitosto.
4: So for most of, like if you look back at Live at Newport albums from way back when, whether it was you know, Blue Note or Vanguard or Folkways or uh, Atlantic Records, there were a lot of different labels that were involved way back when uh, in the 50s and 60s, with a lot of those early recordings, Most of it was either photography-based or it was art-based, typically paintings or illustrations. So for me, I definitely wanted to go with something that was kind of duotone, stark, illustration-based. We used a photograph on the back, which was the group shot by Josh Wool, which was great. Uh, But I really wanted to kind of call out the title of the set and also all of the players. So in order to do that, I used the motif of the kind of protest signs and the hands and went with kind of that old um, kind of photocopy style, a little bit more like kind of a flyer art uh, approach. Uh, But it was just really a vehicle to get the name as big as I could and to get the players on there. And then uh, we used a little element up in the corner, you know, recorded live at Newport Folk. And my rationale behind that was, hopefully this is a template we'll use going forward so that as we create other vinyls um you know there's a kind of a, a look and feel to them so i just really was looking to kind of create a template and a motif i thought would have would have legs uh, but also would kind of stand on its own and, and be and be loud in a bin so when i was a kid loud in a bin yeah like that, i mean yeah. when i was when i was a kid you'd flip through the bins and okay. And that was your advertisement. That's how you grab somebody's attention. And then obviously when vinyl kind of started to go away in favor of CDs, they went to a long box, which is why those CDs were in those long boxes was to give that tactile Hmm. vibe like you were flipping through bins. Uh, And then obviously environmentally that was bad and cost wise that was bad and they they got rid of that. But, um, you know, how an album feels when you're flipping through, I thought this one would really stand out. So, no pun intended.
0: And when you saw it come out of the box, what was your reaction?
4: It's it's not the first uh, album cover I've done, Mm -hmm. so like uh, you know, I've I've definitely been lucky to do a bunch over the years. But for me, it's the first one of this kind of era of Newport. It it was I'm proud of it. I'm really happy that you know all the artists gave their time. Um, You know, psyched that Chris Funk kind of took the helm. Britt did a great job putting it all together. Um, you know, Jay's vision behind the set was great. It's, you know, it's a family affair and and this is kind of tangible representation of that. So it's it's proud. I'm proud of it. Cool.
6: Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier. right. Brighter.
0: All right, well, Britt, that covers it. That's that's the whole process. Uh, the record's ready to go, and it'll be available on Record Store Day. In fact, I kind of want to ask you about that. What was the uh, what was the thinking behind releasing it specifically on Record Store Day?
3: I mean, I think we're just we're a small independent festival, and Record Store Day celebrates small independent record shops, and it seemed like we would be remiss in getting it out to the masses any other way. Mm. Um, and you know, I was speaking with the distributor, and he was just so thrilled and said, you know, it's so in line with what our goals are for Record Store Day. Um, So it was, I guess the original intent was, we're fans of Record Store Day, we want to support independent shops. And it just seemed like a no-brainer.
0: All right, well, I asked Caps this as well, but I gotta ask you one last question. When you actually opened the box, saw the records, what was your reaction?
3: Uh, it was it was so exciting. It was like uh it was like Christmas Day for me to see this thing and be able to touch this thing after, you know, having so many emails about it and and working with caps on the artwork and um, you know, just having going back and forth with Karen and she actually um shipped it and it <laughs> to my house by accident so I got my, my <laughs> husband was like what are there all these boxes outside <laughs> um but that weigh like a hundred yeah 000. yeah <laughs> uh but yeah it was it's just such it's the culmination of so much hard work from so many people over such a, a many months of time um and I'm just so proud to be one person amongst that crowd um and to be able to just be part of it um and to, it was exciting to listen to it on my record player and be like, wow, it works. It actually makes music. There's sound coming out of it.
0: <laughs> All right, well, there you have it. That's how you make a vinyl record. We encourage everyone to go out this Saturday and support their local record shop for record store day. That's April 21st. A big thank you to everyone who took the time to talk with us this episode. Um, And I also want to thank the artists who participated in the speak Out set for waiving their fees for this record. As a result, all of the profits will be going towards our music education initiatives for the foundation. Uh, But thanks as always to you guys for listening. And again, my name is Dan. I'll see you next episode.